Would you turn to Mark 13? Uh, we're going to be reading verses 28 to verse 31. Mark 13, 28 to 31. We're still going through the um, end time, the Olivet Discourse, and we're just hammering our way through, trying to explain every verse in this um, wonderful um, discourse. And we find ourselves today in Mark 13, 28 to 31. No doubt that the, the, the subject still remains to be the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ is the hope of every Christian. It's the glory of every saint. It is the delight of the bride as she is presented to her most beloved bridegroom. Before we um, knew Christ as our Lord and Savior, our eyes were blinded to our need for Him. We hated God. We loved the vanity of this passing world. The feast of our hearts was clenching to the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Our life consisted of our possessions and our passions, and we were dead in sin and trespasses, and we drunk sin like water. But when our blessed Savior spoke life into our souls and said, in your blood, in your, in your blood live, when God shone the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ into our hearts, then the veil of our self-righteousness that darkened our souls was torn in half the scales fell from our eyes and we beheld the glory of christ as the most precious thing in our lives the reproach of christ to us who believe is now way greater riches than all the treasures of egypt as it says in hebrews the longing to be with Christ is so much sweeter than all the pleasures of sin. Paul has expressed what every new regenerated heart feels at the very core, the very center of his soul. And Paul says, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And again, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Brothers, sisters, if this is the affection of the deepest inclination of our hearts, then how much are we to wait eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, like it says in 1 Corinthians 1.7? Or like it says in Titus 2.13, how much should we be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus? How hard should we press on to fix our hope completely on the grace to be, re be brought to us at the revelation of Christ Jesus, as it says in 1 Peter chapter 2. The critiques, the ignorant, they grumble, they complain, and they say, well, why does it matter to study the second coming of Christ? Who cares when he comes? What matters is here and now. What's really important is to live a good, moral, upright life. So don't worry about the return of Jesus Christ. Worry about living a godly life now. Oh, brothers, how can we live a godly life if this life is not rooted in the return of Jesus Christ? What endurance do we have? What commitment can we maintain when we don't fill our minds with the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Try it. Try it for a while. Let the second coming of Christ roll down in the ladder of priorities. Let it be a minor thing in our lives and see how our strength would deplete, our patience would run out, 
our hope would evaporate in the midair like smoke. And we would be, like Paul said, among all men, the most pitiable. Meditating on the return of our blessed Savior gives us comfort. It is strength to our bones. And our patience will endure. How, how, how long, for, how, how long, how we long for the day when we're absent from the body and present with the Lord. How we ought to yearn for the day when sin and death are forever defeated. When Satan is chained. When curse is crushed. In Jesus' first coming, our souls were redeemed. And we ought to be thankful to God for that. Absolutely. How much should we sigh and groan for the day when our bodies also would be redeemed? When we enter into our full salvation, when we judge the world, when we commune with Christ face to face, when we walk no longer by faith but by sight. So as we continue reading this study, reading and studying this portion of the Olivet Discourse, I want to ask you to study and meditate and yearn for the second coming of Christ. Let it be not just um, um, some form of just mental, intellectual stimulation, but let it sink deep into our heart as an act of worship, saying together, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Starting from verse 28, Jesus says, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near. Right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Well, just a background to set the stage up. This was Tuesday evening of the Passion Week. It was the last public speaking of our Lord Jesus. And as soon as he left the temple, he prophesied the destruction of this temple. And when the disciples heard Jesus prophesy about the destruction of the temple, they thought that um, surely it would have been the end of the world as we know it. To, to them, the world was ripe for judgment. The Messiah has come. He will destroy the temple just as he said he would. And immediately, he will replace it with the temple that is mentioned in the book of Ezekiel. So he will overthrow the Roman Empire, establish his earthly kingdom, and finally, and once and for all, Israel will be the greatest of all nations. So in the mind of the disciples, they had no doubt whatsoever that the end of the age was at hand. It was very near. So the disciples asked Jesus two specific and clear questions. Back in verse 4. Tell us, when will these things be? It's a question of when. Is it going to be after the school holidays? Is it after two weeks' time? Well, two months? When is it going to be? The end of the time, the end of the age. And the second question is about the what. It's a what question. What will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? So Jesus used this opportunity and gave them the longest discussion ever penned in the Gospel of Mark. All other doctrines and the teachings of Jesus, Mark went right through them, just quick. But when speaking about the end times, Mark paused right there and he dedicated a whole entire chapter Chapter 13, for the end time. Well, no wonder. 
since obviously the Old Testament, you've got the book of Daniel, the book of Joel or Ezekiel and Zechariah and many other books in the Old Testament, how they dedicated chunk passages about the end times. So here as well, Jesus dedicated that lengthy discussion about the end times. So from verse 5 all the way down through verse 27, all we have studied so far, Jesus was answering the second question, the what question. What will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? It's like Jesus saying, well, do you want this sign? Well, I'm going to give you signs. Then he gave them general signs that normally occurred every day life. The earthquakes, the famines, the deceptions. Then he gave them an unmistakable sign, the abomination of desolation. They won't need to look for this sign. No, all they need to do is just run and hide from this sign. Then Jesus gave them even more specific signs. The sun and the moon will be darkened. The stars will be falling. All of these are the answer to the question about the sign before the second return, the second coming of Christ. Now, having answered the what question, Jesus will answer the when question. When all these things are going to be fulfilled, they ask. Meaning, when will all these signs going to begin? How long will it last for? We just want to know when you will establish your earthly kingdom, Jesus. And so we start with the first point, illustrations, the illustration. And we read in verse 28, Jesus says to them, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. Now what is a parable? It's an everyday earthly reality that explains simple truth. It is an illustration, a powerful yet very simple way that helps hearers to understand what is being said. It's just simple. And Jesus used parables throughout all his time in his ministry on earth. Well, what's a parable? Parable, um, maybe you can put it in another way. It's an ancient version of the PowerPoint presentations that we now use. Back then, in those days, they didn't have PCs. So they used parables in their teachings. So Jesus says to his disciples, now learn the parable. Go and study this parable. Use your brain, disciples. Understand what this parable is saying. Now just pause there. We need to understand something very, very important. We need to understand that the, those disciples of Jesus, they weren't theologians. Okay? They, they didn't get a seminary degree. Jesus didn't go to um, the University of Jerusalem and handpicked um, the, the greatest and the most intelligent people. He didn't do that. They weren't sophisticated human beings. On the contrary, the exact opposite, they were simple, they were uneducated fishermen. So for Jesus to say, now learn the parable, it would have meant that this parable was extremely simple to understand. We need to keep this in mind. Because I believe that if we are going to overthink this parable, uh, we are going to miss what Jesus is trying to say big time. I must say this, that um, um, this is really important to keep in mind because when I was reading in the last week uh, different books, I read lots of gibberish, just weird way of explaining this parable, um, that if we uh, didn't know anything about the disciples, and if they understood what was written, what I read, uh, we would have easily concluded that these guys, these disciples would have been surgeons or professors to understand the meaning of this parable this way. But they were not, right? They were fishermen. They were simple people. And we need, if we want to understand this parable, we've got to be like them. We've got to be in their minds, in the mind of Peter and John and James to understand it properly. So I think the safest approach, even before I begin to explain it, Safest approach is to read this parable in a very simple way. Um, Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty five. let me read it to you. I praise you, Father of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them 
to infants, to simple, simple people. So let's be simple people when we read this. So we'll move on. It says, now we learn, now learn the parable from the fig tree. So what fig tree is he talking about? What's going on there? Well, back then, um, at the time uh, of Jesus uh, and during that time, uh, the climate uh, in Jerusalem meant that there were fig trees everywhere. That They uh, used to grow like weeds. And uh, just like uh, any other teacher of Jesus' time, all the other rabbis did the same thing. They used fig trees as illustration to illustrate something, to explain something that is simple. Now, some people think that this parable, uh, when it says fig trees or that fig tree, it refers to the nation of Israel. Now, the problem with this is that in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 21, verse 29, uh, a parallel account in the Gospel of Luke, it says, Behold the fig tree and all the trees. It is not just the fig tree, it's all the trees. So does that mean a fig tree and all the trees are referring to Israel? Well, in what basis do you say that? In what basis? Well, I don't believe so. I think to understand this, like I said just earlier, we must Use the most simplistic approach. I'll show you what I mean. So we'll just continue reading. Um, Jesus says, When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Well, what does that mean? At the time, during his Passion Week, when Jesus just said this, it was early spring. Spring comes before summer. And uh, as, the, as the disciples, along with Jesus, were climbing the Mount of Olives, there were trees everywhere. Not just fig trees, many other kind of trees. There were fig trees, there were olive trees, of course, has to be olive trees, there were an amount of olives, of course, and there were all other kind of trees there. And um, they look around at all the trees, what do they see? Remember that they are at the time of spring, what would they see at that time? Well, think about it, there will be little buds that begin to grow into young shoots from, from the old branches. And these young shoots um, they would be little tender, like the passage says, and they would see little baby leaves and even very greeny fruits. And as they have climbed this mountain now, and if they were hungry or thirsty, if they had an empty stomach, and then they look all around them and they see all kinds of produce, all kinds of trees producing all kinds of baby leaves and fruits that are bitter and sour. They, they're not yet ripe. They're not just ready for harvest. And so Jesus says, when you see all of that, you know that summer is near. Summer's just around the corner. Of course, because immediately after spring, what comes after that? Summer. Summer comes after spring. All right? The reaping of the tasty fruit is almost there. It's very simple. Even uneducated fishermen can understand this. It's common sense. So what's the point? What's the point of this parable? What does it all mean? What's the significance of all that? Well, in verse 29 it says, even so. Now here's a shift. Here is the transition from the illustration to the interpretation. So that's the second point, interpretation. The interpretation of this parable. And Jesus says, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Luke adds, the kingdom of God is near. So just like when you see the young shoots, the baby leaves, the bitter, sour fruits, when you see all of that, it is just like when you see what? These things happening. What is these things that are happening? 
Well, in the mind of those simple disciples, remember, we're talking as though that we are in their mind, seeing what they see, hearing what they're hearing. These things must have been referring to everything that Jesus just mentioned. What we haven't yet moved away from Mark 13. Uh, These things are referring to everything from verse 7 all the way leading up to the coming of Christ. So these things are the birth pangs, the wars, the famines, the earthquakes, all of these things. These things are like the the, the persecution that they're going to have to suffer. And all of the sudden, the abomination of desolation, the Antichrist and his vicious assault on the Jews and the Christians, the fleeing to the mountain, the light of the sky when it just goes out. All of these things is like the trees that are putting forth leaves. And just as it is obvious to your disciples, Jesus says, that when you see the trees putting forth leaves, you know that summer is near. Summer is just around the corner. Just as you know all of that, so also when you see those tribulations that I just spoke about, do recognize that he is near, right at the door. Again, what does it mean summer is near? Simple. Jesus is right at the door. Summer is near. The kingdom of God is near. So, in one hand, leaves are the tribulations. And summer is near, meaning the summer, the Messiah is at the door. In other words, once you see these little leaves of tribulations, you know that it's just a matter of some days and your Savior will smash the doors of heaven open. He will bolt out of heaven with blazing light and with irresistible power. He will usher in his kingdom. And because of his great glory, surely the kingdom will be a glorious kingdom. The bitter and sour fruit of the tribulation period will give way to this glorious and satisfying life. So all the seals and the trumpets and the bowls of the book of Revelation from chapter 6 to 19 are the tender branch, the leaves. And though the pain is intense and the fruit is bitter, Yet the summer is just the next season. It's just one season away. And to emphasize the principle of this parable, just to make sure no one would allegorize this parable or spiritualize it, um, just to, to ensure that we don't overcomplicate the one meaning of this parable, Jesus then moves on and he gives us an implication of this parable. Implication. So that's the third point, the implication. We've looked at the illustration of the parable, the interpretation of the parable. Now we come to the implication of this parable. And Jesus says bluntly here in verse 30, Truly I say to you, let's try and make it simple for the disciples, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Truly I say to you, pay attention to what I'm about to say. That's what truly I say to you means. And he says, this generation, generation, what's a generation? It's just a span of 40 years. That's what a generation is. And the question then, of course, is what generation that will not pass away? What is this generation that he's talking about? Well. Let me, let me give it to you just very quickly and then I'll explain it after that. Well, this generation would have to be the generation that would still be alive and witness the, these things that are happening verse 29. And before this generation passes away, they will witness the second coming of Christ. They will witness it right through to the end. Those who witness this, the, the, the beginning will witness the end. It's all going to happen within that one and same generation. It's just, if we read it with simplicity, is what it means. Yeah, um, we know, uh, um, I believe that many of us know that 
there are a lot of interpretations of this. There are some crazy interpretation of this text, um, ranging from heretical interpretation to allegorizing uh, this passage in, in such a meaningless ones that are not logical and not true to the text. Uh, for, for example, there are some uh, say flat out that Jesus was wrong. Jesus must have been wrong in this. It's not true. It can't be true. Um, it's just simply didn't get it right this time. Well, I'm not going to bother, um, bother you or waste your time uh, trying to defend uh, our, my stand on this or rebuttal this view. I'm just going to skip to really um, what I believe uh, one of the most common uh, uh, view, and I think many of us are familiar with it. It is this, this generation refers to the generation at the time of Jesus. But some say that. Some say all these events from wars, persecution to everything else that Jesus just mentioned were all fulfilled at 70 AD, at the coming of the Romans and the destruction of the temple. Everything was done and dusted by 70 AD. Nothing here refers to the end times. And some of those people, they kind of like disagree. And, you know, of course, we know we heard of the preterists view and a partial preterist where some say everything, including the second coming of Christ, was fulfilled. And others say, no, 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 no. Well, how about this? We'll split, we'll split the, the Oliver Discourse into two parts. One part uh, was fulfilled. And uh, by the authority invested in me, uh, I will say the second coming was not fulfilled. And then they split it according to their own uh, opinions. I don't know how they justify that, but they do that. But in any case, they say all these events were fulfilled at the um, coming of Roman soldiers and at the destruction of the temple. Just how do you justify that? How do you account for all the cataclysmic events from verses 5 to verse 27. How do you claim that they were all fulfilled? The only way to agree with this view is to completely reject the scripture, Old and New Testament. Because as we've seen in the past several sermons, all these events leading up to the second uh, coming of Christ are all explained in details in the scripture, especially in Revelation. Let me give you a sneak peek on, on the, um, on the extent of God's wrath that will be felt across the globe at the end times. I just want to go very quickly and I'll give you 11 um, events, cataclysmic events that will take place and that will affect the entire globe um, that the Oliver Discourse is referring to. One, um, hail and fire will consume a third of Earth's vegetation, that's in Revelation 8.6. Second, a third of the ocean will be turned to blood. That's Revelation 8.8. Third, a third of fresh water will, will be poisoned. A third of the sun, the moon, and the stars will be darkened. Countless demons will be released to terrorize people. A third of the world will be killed, and a later a fourth of the world will be killed incurable sores that will cause great pain to many people in the earth. The entire sea will turn to blood and all sea creatures will die. The rivers will turn to blood. Darkness will engulf the world. I mean, clearly all these cata catastrophic events, um, they never occurred in human history, much less in 70 AD. Or take, the, take a look at this in Mark 13. Right in front of you, in verse 19. When Jesus said, for those days will be a time of tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of, crea of the creation, which God created until now and never will. Never occurred and never will. For anyone to claim this was fulfilled at 70 AD, what do you have to do to come up with this claim? Just what do you have to do? Let me tell you, you, you would probably have to have a crystal ball 
you would have to look back in time and forward in the future and look through the corridor of time, scan right through and have a look at the Islamic era, the Ottoman Empire, the French and the Italian invasion, all the world wars, and even look into the unknown future and yet come out and concluding, yep, it's true. It's true. What's true? Well, at 70 AD, it was a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will. How do you really support this claim? And how do you account for the second coming of Christ when the second coming of Christ just preceded early, just a couple of verses earlier? How do you account for that? When, when Revelation 1-7 says every eye will see him, how do you account um, for this major event that you claim that it did occur at 70 AD? And to be partial preterist, meaning to say, ah, oh, that bit didn't occur yet, but everything else did occur. I mean, how do you account for the fact that the disciples were asking specifically about the end of the age and Jesus' second coming? They weren't asking for the Romans coming. They were asking about Jesus' second coming. And you can read that for yourself in the in Gospel of Matthew. The entire Olivet Discourse has one single thread. And it has to be read in one piece as a whole. Grammatically, that's the only way that would make sense. And it can't be separated. You can't just simply separate part from another part as we please. And the entire Olivet Discourse has one thing, one aim in mind, and that is to describe all the events preceding the second coming of Christ. None of these events has been fulfilled yet. So how do we understand this generation? How do we understand this? Again, let me tell you, this generation is the generation that would be alive at Jesus' future coming. In other words, if Jesus would rapture the church today, in, in our generation, then all the believers will be snatched up to heaven and all the rest of the unbelievers will have to go through the tribulation period all the way to the end. Why? Because they would be the generation that will not pass away until all these things take place. But what about this? You know, the word this. Well, why didn't Jesus say the word that? generation right i mean normally when you speak about something at the far future you should say that not this well we need to understand something here this is a prophetic genre it's a prophetic genre and and sometimes the prophets in the past would speak as though that when they speak it is they they're teleported themselves to the far future and then they begin to address those who would live um during a time when their prophecies are getting fulfilled. This is nothing new. You read the Old Testament, it's full of those passages where you would find Isaiah or Jeremiah or many other prophets. They would speak as though they are speaking in the future to that current generation in the future. Let me give you a few references. Isaiah 45 verse 4, when um, uh, Isaiah spoke to Cyrus the king when before even he was born. Um, Isaiah 66, verse 10, Zechariah 9, verse 9. Many places in the Old Testament where the prophets of the past, they would speak as though they were in the future. No problem at all. So to wrap up the parable, let's wrap up, wrap up the parable. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, what are the leaves? It's these things happening. The birth pains, the severe persecution, everything else in this chapter. These are the leaves. And when you see these things, you know that Christ is at the door. And the disciples now are wondering when Jesus said this, whoa, uh, well, what, what, this is going to be intense. It's going to be agonizing. It's going to be huge. You said that you're going to shorten these days. Well, what does that mean? Um, 
Uh, have we been wrong? I mean, how long will it take from the start till the end? Will it be 400 years? Or will it be a century of severe affliction? How long, Jesus, from the time that we begin to experience the birth pangs all the way to your second coming? How long? So Jesus is saying, this generation that will be alive at the beginning of this labor pain will be the same generation that will be at the delivery. This generation that will enter the seven-year tribulation period will be the same generation, as it says there, will not pass away until the second coming of Christ. Again, in another word, in other words, whatever generation that will witness these things, the calamities, the devastation, the bloodbath, the seven-year period of Jacob's distress, they know that it's the same generation that will witness the coming of the Messiah bursting into the scene, shattering the door of heaven, bringing with him his kingdom that you're all eagerly waiting for. And how can we be sure of that? How can we be sure of that, Jesus? I mean, it's just too much to take in. We'll come to the authorization. Last point. Point four. Authorization. And Jesus here now will stamp what he said with his own authority. And he says in verse 31, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. What a marvelous, tremendous, tremendously glorious statement by our Lord Jesus. Let's have a look at it. Heaven and earth will pass away. Let us be wise as we take into heart what Jesus just said. Heaven and earth will pass away. This diamond worth its weight in gold and diamonds. Everything in this world will pass away. Vanity of vanity and grasping of the wind. All is vanity. There is a, a cosmic decay in this universe. There will be a real sense when God will pour out his wrath and the earth will feel like it's going through meltdown. Mountains will move out of their places. Islands will submerge. And when you look up into heaven, you will look Heaven, you will find that heaven looks like it's disintegrating. Everything, everything will feel like it's breaking in, in half and crumbling from inside out. And even after 1,000 years of Jesus' reign on earth, the heaven and the earth will eventually give way to a new heaven and earth. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, why is he saying this? Because, let's read it again, even though heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Let the whole world melt down. Let every mountain turn into jelly and even the whole earth become gas. But Jesus' words will not pass away. You can count on Christ. Jesus said it, that settles it. He's coming back, and he's coming back with great power and great glory like we read earlier last week. Everything will be about him. And he will be at the front and center of all praise and worship. Let us stand firm in our faith and upon God's word. This is God's plan and only plan. God does not have plan B. Why? He doesn't need plan B. Why? Because it says there that his words will not pass away. The word of God is eternal. The word of God will never change. Matthew 5.18 Jesus says, not the smallest letter or stroke 
shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. John 10.35, Jesus says the scripture cannot be broken. Numbers 23.19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, will he not do it? Or has he spoken? And will he not make it good? The word of Christ, brothers and sisters, is sovereign. The word of Christ is supreme. The word of Christ is mighty. Let us not forget what the word of God says. That the world is upheld by the very word of Christ's power. His word is sharper than two-edged swords. It's like a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces. What does that mean? It means that Jesus' words are utterly trustworthy. They're completely reliable, totally dependable. All of his promises will be fulfilled. All his prophecies will have to be, will have to come to pass. Jesus is coming back. And in his coming back, it will be a, se a second coming of a glorious coming. He will be a delicious fruit to those hungry souls. He will be the living water to every thirsty man. And once he comes, he will establish his earthly kingdom. Satan will be bound for 1,000 years. And during this period, Jesus will reign triumphantly with his people. And during this 1,000 years, there will be peace on earth. Why? Because the king of peace will be seated in his throne. Do we believe this truth? Do we believe that this world will pass away? Does the way that we spend our time show that we believe this truth? Let me tell you what the scripture says, what Jesus says that he will do at his second coming. He says this in Revelation 22, 12. Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Do we believe this? Do our bank transactions show that we believe the words of Jesus? Do our relationships, our jokes, our affections, our books that we read, the conversations that we're having, our aspirations, does our life show that we believe what Jesus says to be true? That his words will not pass away? What would our lives be like if we believed what we just heard to be true? Let me finish with this. Let me finish with a, a quote that I extracted from Randy Alcon. I couldn't say it any better. He says this. Imagine you're alive at the end of the Civil War. You're living in the South. But you are a northerner. You plan to move home as soon as the war is over. While in the South, you've accumulated lots of Confederate currency. Now suppose that you know for a fact that the North is going to win the war and the end is imminent. What will you do with your money? If you're smart, there is only one answer. You should immediately cash in your Confederate currency for the U.S. currency. The only money that will have value once the war is over. You keep only enough Confederate currency, which is basically the earthly currency, to meet your short-term needs. When the Lord returns, all remaining money, pile of worthless possessions, it will burn like wood, hay, and straw when, when it could have been given in exchange for gold, silver, and precious stones. Money that could have been used to feed the hungry and fulfill the Great Commission will go up in smoke. 
How about you, Randy says? How much Confederate money will have left when we die or Christ returns? Brothers, sisters, while it still has value, let us place our time, effort, and money at the feet of Christ. Let us exchange our beings and all that we have for treasures in heaven. Amen. I want to address the unbelievers in this room. Jesus said a few words, and they will not pass away. Jesus said, he who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Do you believe this truth? Do you believe that if you come to Christ, no matter the condition of your heart, no matter your history, no matter your track record, if you come to Christ, that he will not cast you out. He is sovereign. He is able. He is powerful to keep his word. What stops you from coming to Christ? Let me tell you the biggest misconception in the minds of many unbelievers that ought not to be there. When I ask this question, what is it that stops you from coming to Christ? Here is the common answer. I love my sin. And people claim that loving sin stops them from coming to Christ. I want to submit to you, this is the biggest error in a gospel presentation. Loving sin leads you to judgment. Loving sin brings you before a holy God and causes that holy God to be angry at you and cast you into the pit of hell. But loving sin can never hold you back from coming to Christ. Why is that? Let me tell you why. Because loving your sin is a disease and Christ is the cure. Loving sin is your filth and Christ is the only sanitizer that will cleanse you from this sin, from this filth. Loving sin is the internal heart cancer. And Jesus is the only surgeon. Should the cancer stop you from coming to the surgeon or should it not be the very reason why you ought to come to the surgeon so that he would operate on you? Loving sin is the very evidence why you're in a desperate need to come to the Savior so that the Savior himself would cause you to hate sin. To claim that you can hate sin on your own apart from coming to the Savior is to deem this Savior to be useless. You come to the Savior and bring with you all the baggage that you're carrying, all the wrong thoughts, all the wrong deeds that you've committed, bring them all before the Savior and tell him, deal with me. You promised if I will come to you, you will accept me the way I am and you will change me. Let me tell you what would stop you from coming to Christ. It's nothing to do with Christ. It's got to do, it's got everything to do with you. And what is it exactly that to do with you? It is not your unrighteousness. It is your self-righteousness. It is because you're not convinced that you're in need of a savior. If you hate your sin, even if you try to hate your pride, even if you try to hate your lust before coming to Christ, even that is not enough to satisfy the demand of God's justice. It is not because you somehow can cultivate a level of humility that God would accept you. It will never satisfy the demand of what God demands of you, the demand of God, His justice, His wrath, His holiness demands something way bigger than for you to hate your sin. 
And it's only Christ and Christ alone. It is not Christ plus hating your sin. It is not Christ plus you be humble or be less selfish. It is Christ and Christ alone that satisfied the requirement for God's wrath and God's justice. He died on behalf of his people. And the reason why he died on their behalf is because he knew that none of his people could ever do anything or feel anything so that God would accept him. It is only Christ and what Christ has done that would please the heart of God. If you come to Christ, if you come to him, he promises that he will accept you. On what basis? On the basis that he suffered, died, punished, absorbed the wrath of a holy God on your behalf. When you come to him, he will accept you. He will embrace you. He will change you. You will be a child of God. Not because you're good. Not because somehow you felt a little more humble than you, than you felt before you came to Christ. But because of Christ. What a great Savior. What a loving Savior. God places no requirement on your behalf to come to Him. Why? Because Christ 100% satisfied the God's requirement on your behalf. So I urge you to behold Christ, to fix your eyes upon the only Savior. He's coming back. He's coming back. But before He comes back, I plead with you, repent. Put your trust in Jesus. Lay down your weapon of self-righteousness and say, Christ, only you can save me. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful for your word. And we praise you for Jesus. It's all about him. It's all about your son, Jesus. He is worthy of all praise and glory and worship. Lord, we pray, lead us, Lord, to come to Christ. We pray that not one single soul leaves this place without being challenged to come to Christ, to feast on Christ, who is the bread of life. In Jesus' name. Amen.